Welcome to 50 Date Night Screams. I'm Amber Tresca. And I'm Mike Tresca. We're a married couple who decide to celebrate our 50th birthdays by watching some old movies. A lot of old movies. Join us as we watch 50 movies on our date nights and have fun dissecting them. As a bonus, each episode is accompanied by an original character I created and designed for use in your tabletop role-playing games. Many of the movies we watch are unrated, but this podcast is not. 50 Date Night Screams contains mature themes and is intended for adult audiences, so take care when listening. Plus, there are spoilers. Check the show notes to see where you can watch this movie before you listen. We're glad you're here. Have a seat, grab a glass of your favorite beverage, and get ready to scream along with us. Marion. Your name is Marion, isn't it? Yes, but how did you know that? Oh, well, that's easy. A girl getting on the bus in Wilton with brown eyes and brown hair. Your name had to be Marion. There's only one thing wrong with the picture. A girl by the name of Marion shouldn't look so gloomy. Can't I do something about it? You can, by minding your own business. Oh, well, I'm sorry. I, I made a mistake, that's all. Can't blame a fellow for trying. Here's your handkerchief with your name embroidered on it. Thank you. Can I call a cab? No, thank you. I have my car in the garage nearby. Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of 50 Date Night Screams. Our movie today is Daughter of the Tong. And I have with me my co-host and husband, Mike. Mike, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, Not too bad. I think we need to start off this episode with a content warning. (laughs) I feel like... We're going to do that for every movie from here on out, but this one definitely requires one for sure. Yeah. Uh, What would be your content warning for this movie? Um, It it is, look, it's not as bad as we thought, but it certainly does have a lot of uh, very offensive stereotypes that were probably endemic to the time, doesn't excuse it. Take your pick as to how offensive you want to be from... We have characters who are not the ethnicity they're playing to villainous characters who are essentially achieving a stereotype. In fact, they're called stereotypes in in the conversation in the movie itself. So there's plenty of things to be offended by here. Um, And that's not even talking about the content of what happens. It's just the concept at face. Uh, Well, to try to put it more succinctly, (laughs) (laughs) there are characters in this movie that are of Asian descent or are supposed to be of Asian descent and are not. So if that kind of depiction is something that you don't want to hear about, then you might want to skip this episode and we will see you next time on episode 15. And the first hint of it is the title Daughter of the Tongue. Daughter of the Tongue. (laughs) Seeing that title... In the list of the movies, I was like, this this can't be good. No good could come from no this. No good could, can come of this. Are we going to talk about the poster or, we, or should we wait? Well, let me start first okay. with giving the stats of the movie and then we can go into the poster. There's a couple different ones. All right. Movie, Daughter of the Tongue, year 1939, which put those two together, you just know it's going to be a problem. All right. It is black and white. The director is Raymond K. Johnson. It has a 4.7 out of 10 on IMDb, and it is 56 minutes long. 4.7? Yeah. 
That's it's kind of high, right? That that's yeah. That beats Carnage and a couple of other things that were okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, it may have to do with a few different things that are not actually the content of the movie. So, all right. So the summary is one sentence. A detective matches wits with the female leader of an oriental crime ring. That was hard to say. (laughs) Because it's terrible from beginning to end. The whole premise of the movie is terrible and racist. Daughter of the tongue, ladies and gentlemen. Daughter of the tongue. I'm just going to keep saying that because this one uh, is not trying to hide it. It's right there on the tin. It's right there. Okay, now, the title character, the daughter of the dog, who is also called in the movie the illustrious one, and official name being Carney, which I can only think of carnival people. Yeah, it's such a weird choice. I I don't understand that, and I also don't see why, like, why wouldn't you give that, give the character, like, a regular name well anyway. and i do get one of the things that comes up later is they wanted to be mysterious as to who she actually was so carney is an as a sounding male sounding name i guess um but other than that i can't explain why they would use carney of all things just call her bob at that point uh, right i don't know okay this character is played by an actress named evelyn brent she was apparently moderately famous and had a decent career in the 20s and it but it was winding down by the time she did this film and actually she would have been 40 in 1939 so i found that kind of interesting um also evelyn brent not asian as far as i can find out at all yet playing an asian character not not a new thing in hollywood but something to be aware of with this movie. All right. Um, The male lead is Ralph Dixon. He was in over 200 movies. (laughs) Depending on where you read it, he was married either four times or five times. Tragically, he took his own life when he was 54. He apparently had some health problems and... That's about all I know. There was anything else that contributed to that. He was 6'3", so he was very tall, and he often played villains in the movies. I guess that kind of makes sense given his height, I suppose. So we also have another notable actor. His name is Richard Liu. Yes, an Asian person in this film. Yay! (laughs) At least there was one. He was in more than 120 films. He also has 50 TV roles behind his name. And he is of Chinese heritage, but he often played Japanese characters in these movies, which if you think about the time frame, the World War II time frame, that kind of makes sense. Uh, That he was often a Japanese soldier uh, maybe sometimes a villain, and uh, that's how he maybe was uh, typecast a little bit. But he did uh, he did work a lot, and he was in over a hundred films. So that was actually uh, nice to see. 
and glad that there was at least one person of Asian descent in this movie because I really didn't know that it was even going to have that. If you set the bar low enough, we can be very impressed by this film. So it's amazing how bad it can be and then how bad we're like oh it wasn't actually that horrific as we thought so yeah they there are actually asian actors in it which of course means they could have gotten a asian lead but never mind that's too much for 19 yeah they could they could have i i don't see now everybody that was in this movie at least it looked that way from imdb these names are still not familiar to me but they all had long careers and they all worked a lot so it's not like some of the other poverty role films that we have seen where people were being pulled, I think, maybe like friends and relatives and neighbors. These were movie stars, truly, and uh, hardworking actors that were in this movie. And you can also tell because even though the story maybe have left something to be desired and the fact that they did not use people of Asian descent for roles that were supposed to be Asian people. They, the acting was pretty good, you know, um, I would say overall. Better be careful of that thing, buddy. It might go off accidentally. Maybe you've read about a guy named Wilson they picked up in the street. It wasn't any accident. Oh, so you did that job, huh? Yeah, and I just didn't give it to you the same way I gave it to him. Okay, so let's go through a brief summary of the movie. The movie takes place in Pacific City, and there's this gang in Chinatown. It's called the Carney Gang, okay? So there's so much corruption and so much crime, and it goes so deep that the local law enforcement can't really do much. That's why they call in the FBI, and this is in the beginning of the FBI, so they're still finding their way as well. So the FBI infiltrates the gang but he is murdered. So they get another agent, and this is Ralph Dixon, to impersonate a known criminal who had just escaped from prison, and then he infiltrates the gang as well. And he looks just like him. He just one thing, a little scar. You put the scar on and spit an image. Yeah, right. Look, <laughs> apparently looked... It's kind of comical to me because Ralph Dixon is six foot three, yeah. So, are, like, are there a lot of six foot three people wandering around? And also, I don't know that we ever find out what happened to the actual criminal who supposedly escaped from his prison. Where is he at? I don't. I don't know. Like, he couldn't he have shown up? It was a little weird. No, they they did pick him up. They said that. That's part of it. Part of the reason they 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 knew this was happening was there was a plan that he had and they picked him up in between. So that's how uh, they make an offhand mention to it, which is many of the flaws of this film where they make offhand mention of very important facts <laughs> in quick dialogue. There's a young woman. Her name is Marion and her brother, Jerry is being held by the Carney gang. The brother supposedly didn't know that the Carney gang was a smuggling ring. <laughs> when he figured it out, he tried to extricate himself. They said no. They took him hostage. Okay. So this is now the setting of the conflict here. Now, Ralph brings Marion to FBI headquarters. And she at first is resistant, but then she tells them the whole story. 
and she hopes that they are going to help her brother because he's being held hostage. Ralph tries to expose the gang. He finds out that the leader, Carney, is a woman. Shocker. And now we, the audience, have known this whole time, but the FBI and Ralph did not know who it was, and it was this, um, it was this big secret, I guess. That which is a huge missed opportunity because it was one of those things where it could have been a big reveal uh, by just keeping her off camera until the moment. But it, it, right from the beginning, they're like, "Haha, the FBI doesn't know that she's Carney," right? And then it's like, there's a big reveal later, and you're like, nobody cares because. We already knew that. Okay, so there's a third FBI agent that's part of the gang. <laughs> and he and Grant, who is impersonating an actual criminal, get Jerry away. Then there's a car chase. Uh, <laughs> the world's longest, slowest The world's car most chase. boring car chase. All right. Grant and Jerry get recaptured. They end up back at headquarters. Now they're going to be tortured or murdered or whatever. And just as this is all starting to go down, Marion and the FBI show up and they arrest Carney and they arrest her henchmen. After the world's most hilarious brawling, but yes. Right, right. Okay, so here's, here's the thing. The movie opens up on an opening scroll which immediately makes my eyes glaze over. Like, like, no, okay? It's a movie that is set in modern time and place. There's really not a need to do the scroll. Like, why wouldn't you just have the actors? <laughs> like, you could have told that story. And it's just kind of a different way to handle the opening uh, using a newspaper. Yeah, and this is a holdover from the radio uh you know, silent era uh, of of uh, film prior. And, you know, it's funny because George Lucas adopted it for Star Wars. Um, but it was essentially, you tell a lot of information very quickly and you put it on screen. And it wasn't unusual for people to read it back then. The You know, they were still figuring this out. I think at this, at this point, was this 39? It's a little long in the tooth for them to still be doing this. But it is very much an old-timey film where they're still using the audio tropes of silent film which is you put a lot of stuff on screen and you expect people to read it. Uh, and it goes on for a while, right? It's like four pages of reading about the FBI and how great they are. Yeah, it does go on for a while. And I always think of Star Wars with the opening scroll because to, to my knowledge, that is one of the the most well-known opening scrolls. And not only that, but it was kind of late. It was the 70s. And it wasn't used quite as often then. But here's the thing. Star Wars was an anomaly. It was a space opera before there were space operas. And it was a science fiction movie before there was very much out there, um, at least in the movies, that was science fiction in that way. In that it wasn't people of that day in space or being attacked by aliens or something like that. Like, I, like I understood why I'm like a star Wars apologist, but <laughs> like I understood why you had to explain a little bit, because if you were dumped right into that movie, you wouldn't know what was going on. There were already people that didn't know what was going on. Okay. And were confused and didn't like it. So, 
And this film is interesting because it really works hard to introduce the FBI, which seems weird to us today. I mean, in the era of X-Files, uh, we kind of get it. But it, it, it's almost like they're trying to explain their thesis statement for why the FBI exists. It's it's really very like, these are the tales of the men and women who risk their lives to do things and fight crime. And uh, it sort of goes on at length. But it is interesting because I think to a modern reader, you're like, why are you showing me this? That brings up a good point. That's not something that I read in doing the research on this movie, that this was potentially propaganda or had the cooperation of the FBI or some other government entity. But I think that that, that would be plausible if you told me that I, I would believe it because yeah, that we think of the FBI as having always been there, but they weren't and they didn't start out from such a place of respect. So, you know, they were trying to, earn that and that would have been the time frame in which this happened now the opening scroll um <laughs> at the end of it it refers to chinatown and but it refers to chinatown as a place of mysterious shadows and that stood out as something that was uh that was troublesome and maybe the beginning of how this movie depicted uh people of asian descent and white people playing people of Asian descent. So throughout the movie, there are several different fight scenes and we found them pretty comical. We probably weren't <laughs> supposed to. <laughs> I think at one point I didn't realize it, but you were like, they just repeated yeah. that segment yeah, of film. <laughs> swinging like randomly. It's so funny because we're, look, I'm pretty sure this is probably how fights actually sound. I haven't been in that many, but I've heard it a few. But if you ask what they sound like, I couldn't tell you. But I'm pretty sure they're just not the sounds where you associate with movie fights, which is very much an amplified flesh-on-flesh -flesh slap, you know, thudding um, that we've come to associate, even though it's probably not realistic. So instead, you just get grunting and flopping around, which is probably the actual sound in the studio as they do it. And it's also probably the sound of um, of just, you know, actual combat, at least, you know, stage combat. But it, it it's hard to watch and listen to. Yeah, and it was at that point that I was noticing the absence of music. Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of things that if they're a little twitchy or a little odd or maybe not working quite right, maybe if you put some music in there, it could increase the tension. It can make you think differently about the fight scene. But, you know, there was, you know, there was not even like a pow. Just slapping and grunting, It was just, yeah, it was just, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, almost like grappling. Like, they were just kind yeah. of like weakly yeah. grappling with one another well there's also not what you expect to see from trained combatants which is haymakers and like you know people facing off it's very much like close quarters like sloppily like you said sort of wrestling each other right. and then right. falling all over too the other problem with these because it's black and white it's very hard to see who's who yes um so it's just miscellaneous white guys in suits fighting each other and you're like i don't know who's winning i can't tell who's losing i don't know, I don't know who on. landed a hit um and unfortunately they will often destroy the sets but you can't really tell like it's not like somebody grabs a vase and throws it at somebody and it hits them it's just like stuff gets broken as they flail around so one thing that i do want to bring up is that i didn't understand this daughter of the tongue 
thing. Like, what does that mean? And during that time, Tong was used to refer to a Chinese mob. And they were usually associated with assassinations and violence. And this was something that was the early part of the 20th century. So it was not a word that I was familiar with at all or understood what it meant when it was used in the film and when Carney was called Daughter of the Tong very respectfully by her one of her one of the people that worked for her, which was played by Richard Liu, you know, who who was an actual Chinese person. And we, we have to talk about the cover. Yes, yeah, so let's talk about the movie poster. It uses the font. I don't, is there a name for this font? It's the stereotypical font that you associate with Chinese thing with Ch- like Chinese food or Chinese yeah. restaurants. Yeah. So, and it says "Daughter of the Tong," and it has the name of the uh, actors on it. And um, so it's got the lead man. And he is holding on to Carney by the arm. And she is in a wig, I guess, throughout this movie. And the wig is supposed to look like Asian hair, but she's a white person. And yet in the poster, it kind of looks like they changed her skin tone to be more like what they think it should be an Asian person's uh, skin should look like. And throughout the movie, she's referred to with, with several uh, racial slurs by the different characters in, in the movie. So, and, and (laughs) hilariously. So there is a older man who looks to be of Asian descent, his face, his head is in the corner of this movie poster. I think he only appears in the very beginning of the movie that he's sort of watching things unfolding. And I don't even think he speaks. He's kind of just there smoking a pipe or something and just watching the smuggling ring. They're smuggling people, actually. And he rings the alarm by hitting the gong. Right. That's, his, that's the whole scene. Right. And that's it. Yet he's in the movie poster. But that visual language makes it look like now we know who her, the father of the tongue is, right? Because you add that he's looking in her direction. It's a whole thing. The big thing about this, though, is the IMDb. So, so all of these get remastered, right? So they get re-released. I don't know about the quality of the one we watched. I think it was wasn't terrible um but there were some issues with it but it, it was we, we were able to watch it so every once in a while we go across one of these films we actually can't watch it in its format we have to use youtube or something else to just get some closed captioning understand what's going on but the they remaster it so that means they take the art and put it in a different format usually colorize it so sometimes these are sort of faded or black and white that poster is really bad, and that poster actually modifies her eyes so that she appears even you know more Asian than she that she obviously is not. Um, so it's really fascinating because by the whoever redid the poster certainly knew better. This is more recent. This is not the original. Not as saying, well, okay, that's the time. It's still not great, but you know, not surprising. Uh, somebody remastered it and doubled down on trying to make her look Asian. Yeah, which. 
is wild. It, it's just completely wild. And, and not only that, but then the characters referred to in various different ways, even in the summaries and in some of the write-ups that we looked to, she's referred to as, um, as sultry. What are some of the Slinky, other words? Seductress. Slinky, seductive. The character does not slink, seduce, anything. She's actually very commanding and a very good actress. And she's clearly just doing her thing. She's got all these people working for her. I mean, she's the HBIC. So I don't, so it kind of bothers me because I'm like, are they applying this seductress thing because of the over-sexualization of Asian women? even in people that are writing about this movie today. So that's a big problem. She's not that at all. She is a mob boss, and she's very good at what she does. Well said. And yeah, she's she's not to be messed with. I mean, most of what she does is essentially threaten people with weapons and tell people to torture or otherwise take people out as needed. So... Um, she's she's not a pushover, and which is ironic because one of the things is this is probably one of the strongest uh, female characters as a villain that we've seen from this era. Um, but it you know it comes with a heavy dose of racism to wash it down. Yeah, unfortunately, because there's no, I don't see any reason why this needs to have the Chinese cultural background at all. It just seems to be because they i don't know thought they were bringing something new to this to this crime genre the the actress um Evelyn Brent apparently was in several other movies that had to do with with crime they were crime dramas and so maybe that's why they brought her in for this is because she may have had a following in that regard already but it was not necessary for the background of Chinatown, except just to make it look like Chinese people were criminals. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's not even that. I mean, we were glad that, look, there are some people who are actually Asian in the movie. But it's actually, there's a lot of just generic white guys who are yeah. her muscle. Yeah. Um. So they're not, you know, it's not even that diverse anyway. So it's sort of interesting because you could almost change this and not have it be anything that different there is a big scene involving fireworks right (laughs) (laughs) so that was surprising we did find ways to incorporate other things associated with chinese uh you know settings and there was because it happens in a in a, a shop that's sort of a i don't know it's selling some kind of goods from asia presumably and then the as a distraction i think our our hero, air quotes hero, uh, sets off fireworks. So there was that. But, I mean, other than that, the car scene certainly could have been any generic mob chase. Right. And the story, uh, like, could have been more interesting. They were kind of running through it really quickly. And as we already noted, the actors were all uh, very seasoned and experienced and did a good job. There wasn't... I don't think any point where I was groaning <laughs> over over the acting. They all did a good job with what they had. They just didn't have a lot to do, you know. I do want to talk for a minute about the character of Marion <laughs> because she's 
she's interesting because when we first see her, uh, Ralph is hitting on her in the train station. He gets off the train. He sees her. He finds her handkerchief with her name on it. So he already knows her name. So he's able to go up to her and start speaking to her. Meanwhile, I don't, I don't really know why he does this. This is not his purpose. His purpose for coming there and infiltrating this gang doesn't include anything about picking up chicks. So I don't really know what he was doing with her. But he says, what are you doing here? And, you know, why don't you come with me? And she says, why don't you mind your own business? My car is parked in the garage. You know, like he makes some assumptions right off the bat that she is going to need help and that she is going to, I don't know, capitulate to whatever he's asking of her. And she is immediately like, no, go away. <laughs> and, and Ralphie boy is super, I mean, like, like they wrote him creep, suitably creepy, right? He comes in, he, he, he knows her name, but he doesn't ex- reveal how he knows. And he's big on, you seem so sad. You seem very serious. What's a pretty girl like you having these tough problems kind of thing? And of course, she, it's relevant to the plot later, but he keeps bringing that up. So he's just a creepo all the way around. Yeah, pretty much. And I, I don't know how big that actress is. Her name is Dorothy Short. <laughs> <laughs> but standing there next to Grant Withers, she looked so tiny. Like, it was comical. And actually, uh, Dorothy Short was married to one of the other actors, was married to the actor that played her brother, whose name was Dave O'Brien. So that was interesting. And that also came up in the plot, too, that Marion finally says, oh, it's my brother. And I think Ralph the whole time thought that it was a love interest that was being held by the Carney gang. So when he finds out it's a brother... Like, that makes him happy because yeah. I... <laughs> and Jerry is in an interesting spot. So I don't remember what Jerry was doing. I know he was involved with Carney, and then he wants out. And his master plan is to pay her off. So Marion has to deliver the money. So they're essentially holding him hostage. And he sends for Marion to get the money. And that's what's going on. This is the thing that, you know, Ralph, who can't keep <laughs> keep his focus on his undercover work stumbles into is essentially the reason Marion looks so serious is she's delivering money cash right. uh, as sort of a ransom essentially i mean it's not it doesn't start out that way it's not a ransom initially it's like oh if you pay us what you owe us plus interest or whatever we'll let you go and not surprisingly it doesn't work out that way but there's a whole subplot of jerry trying to get out of stuff he's trying to escape he creeps into ralph's room at one point and then they i don't know there's like a standoff and Jerry just mucks everything up. Yeah, well, it seems to me that if you're in business and you're in the import-export business and you don't recognize that you're working with a smuggling ring, like, maybe you're not very smart. <laughs> you're, not good at, you're not good at the import-export business. <laughs> you're not, I, I mean, I feel like being in the import-export business, you have to know that there are going to be you're going to come across smugglers, right? Like that's just part, that's just going to be part of it and you need to be on the lookout, you need to be able to recognize it. And he didn't know what was going on and then he was neck deep in it before he before he found out and then it was too late cuz they weren't going to let him out of the situation. Right. 
Anyway, let's get to the big question. The big question being, is this a horror movie or is it something else? It is listed in a lot of places as a crime drama or crime slash horror slash drama. I don't see as to how it is horror at all. There's not even, there's some fights. There's not, there's, there's no death. There's no, there's, there's threatened torture. Well, there's a little torture. They do some kind of manicure. <laughs> I'm not sure what happens. It looks like he's getting his nails done. I yeah. assume he's getting, you know, Ralph is getting his nails pulled. Right. Um. So I guess that's horrible. But that even happens off camera. He's just like, sort yeah, it of, everybody's doesn't. like staring at his hand. He's like, Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, they make the only actual Chinese character do that. Yes. You know. Um, yeah, I think I, I I think that Carney calls it a, a Chinese manicure there or something go. like that. Yeah, yeah. Which mm-hmm. is pretty gross. So that's really that's really upsetting. Yeah. Not a horror movie. Not really certain why this movie was included in this package of horror movies. It is not a terrible movie, although it contains a lot of terrible stereotypes. Say, by the way, you've been uh, very helpful to the department. Would you be interested in the FBI? Meaning free board indefinitely? Yeah. Well, I might consult your committee of one and flip for an answer. Ted's All right, so let's go on to our ratings and how many knives, glasses of wine, and screams we're going to give this movie. I literally have no idea how I'm going to rate this movie until <laughs> just for the record, we don't my discuss mouth. our ratings. We don't discuss our ratings beforehand. We so do I don't not know discuss our ratings that, beforehand. We don't. We will sometimes talk about the movie in vague terms, but we really don't discuss things until we get to here. So it's always interesting for both of us to see. So we're not even in sync. Like we don't. If we're close together, that's because we came to those conclusions independently. Yeah, and most of the time we're pretty close. I think a lot of these movies, there's not a lot of wiggle room. Yeah. Although I think there were some movies that I found some redeeming qualities in them, and you maybe did not agree. Uh, I think that flipped once or twice also. Once or twice. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we'll start with Knives from Zero to Five Knives. And this includes the body count, how scary it was, how gory it was. Or did it live up to its title? So let's start with you, Mike. How many knives do you think you're going to give this movie? Man, I have to go first. I know. So look, on some level, uh, this is a big deal. It's human trafficking. Although I'm never really sure, like, was it human trafficking, smuggling people in, smuggling people out, smuggling people in some sort of human traffic? Like, I didn't really know what it no, was. we don't. We don't know what was happening. We just know that there were some people who were being brought right in. They were in crates, so you can make the conclusion that they were being smuggled into the country. I don't think at this point that they would be smuggled out of the country. I think it would be more in. Right. So anyway, to put that in context of how horrible that is, right? So that's bad. Um, certainly the torture is bad. Not that we see much of it. Uh, the biggest problem is the movie's just boring. 
This is boring. So um, there's not a lot going on. So in terms of, I mean, we have the slap fight and (laughs) people (laughs) shoot at each other over a very long car chase uh, only to be caught, which that was the other thing too. Only to be caught. There is at least two or three scenarios, including when they try to escape, um, they climb out a window or whatever, where everybody just, their plans fail. Yeah. So you're back where you started. So I'm going to give it a handle. Which I guess is a point five on the the horror scale. A point five. Mm-hmm. That I believe that that is our lowest knife rating to date. <laughs> well, there's no blade. There's no blade. <laughs> it's just a handle. All right. Well, I'm gonna give it one knife. All right. Moving on to how many glasses of wine, and glasses of wine represents. Was it fun to watch, and did it have any unique moments? So, how many glasses of wine would you give this movie, Mike? (laughs) So, I mean, look, on the one hand, um, this is different. Uh, Carney goes a long way. Her role as the illustrious one, I think, is um, compelling in concept. Um, And, you know, I I always have to try and remember that for all the sort of misogyny and racism that's prevalent in this, somebody wrote some of these things to elicit that, right? In other words, uh, they made Ralph a creep. So somebody knew he was a creep because they did, he did creepy things. So somebody knows what they're doing in some context, at least. Um, So I'm a little inclined to give them some slack on some of this. Um, Again, I go back to the choreography is just not great. Uh, and that makes it a rough watch. Um, this is one of those films that surprisingly has actually several action scenes, and they're just boring action scenes, which you, you have to work hard to screw that up. Uh, a car chase, which we don't get car chases very often in these uh, films, because obviously they were filmed outside, and these are Poverty Row productions. You don't always have that opportunity. They do that, and they just drag it on. Um, we have, as we mentioned, the tickle fight at the end. Um, so between both of those, you know, I, I feel like this is a 1.5. Yeah, one point five. Yeah, I, I, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it. Uh, you know what? Uh, no, I'm gonna give it one. I'm gonna give it one glass of wine, and that is because while the the character of Carney was written in such a way that she was clearly in charge, none of the people in her gang all of whom were men, ever said anything about her being a woman. They did what she said, you know, and even when she, like, barked at them, they did what she said, and they didn't give her any back talk. There was never any discussion of trying to take the reins from her, nothing like that. It was just She was just very clearly in charge. And so that was what was good about the movie, Everything else was bad, okay? (laughs) So it could have been worse in that if they had tried to make all of the people in the gang also be of Asian descent but played by white actors, that was kind of what I was expecting going into this movie. It was a little bit of a relief that that was not the case, if they had had an Asian woman actually playing Carney, this movie would have been orders of magnitude better in a lot of ways. So 
I'm going to have to stick with one glass of wine for this because it was not terribly enjoyable to watch. I think because I was just waiting for more racial slurs and more difficult concepts to come out because as we know, especially during that time period, um, I say especially, but in that time period and even now, we have a lot of problems with how we portray Asian people in films, if they're even in, in film at all, and particularly Asian women. So I, I can't really give it I can't really give it any more than that um, for that reason. So that is a very long explanation of why I am giving this movie one glass of wine, which probably nobody would disagree with. <laughs> all right, so Overall, and that is our rating for Screams. How many Screams we're going to give this movie? It is our all-encompassing rating. Tends to be a little bit of a median of where we've put knives and wine, but sometimes we choose to go in a little bit different direction. So overall, what would you say, Mike? Yeah, this is a one. This is a one. Um, is Like I said, the racism, that's a little heap of negative there. Um, boring, which is a bigger problem. Certainly, I really didn't like Ralph. I think one of the other problems was he he he's a big guy, and he comes off as kind of a brute. He just the way he treated Marion, um, and sort of his overall sort of demeanor, um, his his fake <laughs> scar. All of that just adds up to a situation where he's just not. And by the way, he's not particularly effective. Just to be clear, he's caught twice and being tortured the only thing he does smart is tell the fbi if he doesn't sort essentially give him the signal that he's sort of you know caught the bad guys they should come in and that saved him but other than that every one of his plans suck he's just bad at his job so if this is supposed to boost the fbi it is not a great ad for it so one well you know they did they did Get them in the end, but it basically was because they just descended upon right the the gang's hideout there, which was in a in a hotel, and they kept calling it like a flea bag motel and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny because for all of Carney's reach, and they talk about this frequently about Carney essentially has all these politicians under her control. It seems like she just lives in this hotel. <laughs> right, it. right. There were yeah. a lot of scenes. Of who's the actor, um, Wong, staring at the elevator. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the he, elevator was like another character in this movie. It really was. And he does that because Carney is at the top floor. So he has he gets a little smirk. I mean, he actually does a lot of acting in that sense, right? Where it's, he's sort of not saying things. But you, they zoom in on his face. And he's basically making a judgment call of whoever goes in the elevator and comes out of the elevator. Because he can tell whether or not they've talked to Carney. And that is very subtle because you don't know why you're staring at this very slow elevator, you know, going up and down. But it is um, sort of an interesting point where it's like she just seems to live in this hotel and this uh, slow elevator from hell with guests coming in and out. Yeah, it was very funny the amount of times that they stood there waiting for that elevator versus taking the stairs, even when they were chasing Ralph and Jerry. They're standing there waiting for the elevator. <laughs> There's also a character who's super excited to meet Ralph in his disguise. 
as a villain. And there's a whole pinball thing going on. This pinball game gets a lot of time um, where he's just talking about pinball. It's just so funny. The whole like the weird things they focus on that you're just like, I don't think anyone else cares except the scriptwriter about this. But let's talk about pinball. Right. And and instead of letting characters open up and breathe and show us who they are or have some sort of backstory or anything like that, they're standing around waiting for the elevator. Like, I don't understand. Like, and it didn't create any tension. Again, there's no music. And I know that it wasn't common for the time for them to put in music and certainly not in a Poverty Row film. But having a little bit of music and just more dynamically depicting someone waiting for an elevator, like you could make that very tense and it just wasn't done. It was just, they were sort of like, I can't even imagine filming this, that they're just standing there wait, like waiting for the elevator, like, like wasting film as far as I'm concerned. Like it was just really, it was just really wild. Those, those scenes. I am actually going to give this one 1.5 screams. And I'm going to give it 1.5 screams because of the characters of Carney and Marion. They never have a conversation. The two of them don't really meet and interact. However, each of them shows a lot of qualities that we're not seeing a lot in movies of this time in that they're telling men what to do. They're telling men where to go. They're telling men to leave them alone. They're not concerned about being polite or in doing anything that is for the male gaze. Now, it does seem as though Marion and Ralph end up probably trying to date at the end of it because Marion does make a comment about how she would prefer Ralph to stay in in town and continue working with the FBI there in Pacific City. But other than that, she tells him off several times. And that's really great. And she's also doing what she can to help her brother. And she's not, she didn't go to some other man whether that be a friend or a boyfriend or a family member or whomever she was trying to handle it herself and she knew enough when she got picked up by the feds <laughs> that at first she was trying not to give the situation away uh and, until it was more clear to her that they could probably help her brother better than she could alone simply because of the nature of the gang that they were they were too strong. They had they had too much political power and they had too much physical power for her to deal with on her own. And Carney also, she's the leader of this gang. I think probably the way that it was written and the way that it was thought about in the movie was that it was because um she was and I use quotes around this, you know, exotic and that it was, you know, that kind of an idea. And that's very titillating. But honestly, she played it straight. There was not a wink or any nod to her having any kind of an interest in the men who worked for her 
in uh, in in any kind of a sexual way. She, it did not appear that she was trying to seduce any of them or that she got them to work with her because of her body or her ability to seduce them. So that was really important. She was just the head bitch in charge and calling the shots. And that was it. So for that reason, I'm going to give it that extra 0.5 scream. So a scream and a half. All right, Mike, you have developed a character based on this movie that is for use in tabletop role-playing games. So I can imagine who this character is, but I'm going to ask you to tell me anyway. So tell me a little bit about this character. So this is tricky. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. I was going to say as the white guy, you know, creating this character, um, but I, I, I mean, she's compelling, right? So she, it's obviously the illustrious one. That's what we call her. I like that's a great title, actually. I think the illustrious one is good. And it's great because if you use that title, it sort of conceals the Carney piece, which like not calling it Carney's gang is a good place to start. Um, so she is very much um, a, a gang leader of a gang that's situated in a hotel that's influential. Um, pretty much what you see on screen, but just more compelling and more exciting, hopefully, uh, in terms of opportunities. It's also more um, in line with sort of a fantasy version of the Tong. So there's sort of a promise of this, which you don't see at all. In fact, one of the things that's interesting in the film is that they actually seem like a typical mob, air quotes mob. Um, but there was there. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, at that time, this was actually a big thing with uh, uh, crime syndicates and the Tong specifically. So uh, I did a little bit of research on that, um, but we made our own fantasy version um, as well. So she's part of an organization. She's not just by herself. And I think that's important because it makes her an, a compelling villain. Um, and it's not just somebody you fight, air quotes, fight, right? She's not just – she. yes, she is technically the big boss, but she's actually um, someone who has a lot of resources at her disposal. And what are her stats? What does she excel at? Well – She's very smart and very charismatic, right? So both of those are, are strong traits for her. The big thing is that she has resources. She has other uh, gang members who can essentially help her as needed. So uh, a lot of it's her influence, um, honestly. And, and that makes her the kind of person you may not see at first. You may be dealing with her her minions, but you she is definitely the kind of person you you might – underestimate her which is what happens in the film as well yeah I, I i think that's right i think that the fbi agents once they find out that the leader is a woman they immediately start thinking about it in a different way and the first thing that they go to is calling her names right you know and and looking down on her in in that way and i don't know that they would have done the same were it a man even if it were a Chinese man that was at the head of the gang, which is probably what they assumed. And when they assumed that, they didn't have those, they, they didn't have that going on. They weren't saying, well, the leader is probably just a Chinese man, and so we can we can deal with that. They, they, they weren't discussing it in that way. But once they found out it was a woman, then it immediately became about that. So, all right, so... Where might this character be used? I imagine that it would be more in a city than it would be in a rural area. Yeah, so, you know, the idea is that there's a front 
uh, for what she does. Obviously, there's a front. You know, it was interesting because they didn't go into the film much, but obviously she had some kind of a legitimate operation to be in a hotel. She wasn't in like a seedy kind of hidden area. She was sort of in plain sight. So um, same here where she's very much because she has a lot of resources and a lot of influence. The I, the phrase we use, the society of peace and harmony, which is obviously a cover, right? So that's that is not what it is. And uh, that can the society can show up just about anywhere. So to your point, it absolutely makes sense to be in urban environments, but it can really be anywhere because potentially that's how this can be your first encounter, right? At lower levels is that her uh, gang is is shaking down a, a village. So um, lots of opportunities anywhere, but mostly where peace, large groups of people are gathered because that's where her influence is. And... If people want to download this villain so that they can put it into their roll top, their roll top, so that they can put <laughs> it into their tabletop role playing games, where should they go? So this will be available on Patreon. So that's patreon.com slash Talion, T-A-L-I-E-N for free. We do this uh, all the time when we want to share content and advertise uh, some of the work we're doing, and this is a great way to do it. So she will be the illustrious one will be available uh, there. But we are also compiling all of these villains into a 5e RPG supplement. It's actually called 5e Foes, Gothic Villains. And that will include not just the illustrious one, but every villain that we've discovered up to this point and all through the entire run, as well as... Other rules to flesh them out, which includes stats for their their minions, uh, special weapons, special equipment, anything like that. So um, you can get that through Drive Through RPG, and that'll be available as Five E Foes Gothic Villains, and it will be compatible with the other supplement we released, which was Five E RPG Gothic Adventures. So they all go together. All right. Well. We will put links to all of this information in the show notes as well so that you can easily find this information as well as some of the research and other things that we gathered while we were researching the film and thinking about the themes that were brought up in the movie because we do want to cover things in a respectful way even though this film made it quite difficult because it was... Really not a great depiction of anyone, <laughs> quite <laughs> quite frankly. And today, if it were something that were made today, I would wonder how they got the money. Um, and so, I mean, I guess I could still wonder how they got the money to get this made, even though it was clearly not a great script. They did have great cast, but they also didn't have a lot as far as the actual making of the movie because the car chases and the fight scenes, which should have been really the cornerstone and what this movie was built on and that people would have left the theater and said, oh my gosh, there was this amazing car chase or there was these crazy fight scenes or even, you know, there was this torture scene. Like, none of those were worth talking about. So uh, we did the best we could with this movie, I guess is what I'm saying about this. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. We tried. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's it's a movie that helps you better understand that time period. And I think it also speaks to the 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 ways that 
Asian characters have been treated in Hollywood since the beginning of Hollywood. So it is worth it in that respect. But you have to put all of that in context when you're looking at this movie and trying to understand it. All right, so that will do it for episode 14 of 50 Date Night Screams, Daughter of the Tongue from 1939. All right, thanks, Mike. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to 50 Date Night Screams. Be sure to check the show notes to learn where you can watch this movie for free. The quality isn't always the best when streaming, so we've also included a link to where you can purchase it. You can also get much more information, including the characters from this and all the 50 Date Night Screams episodes at betrayon.com slash Italian. Until next time, don't stop screaming. 50 Date Night Screams is a production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by Amber and Mike Tresca. Mm-hmm.